we are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug shares his message from Authority on Demand, Succession. Well, if you've been with us for these last few weeks, hopefully at the very least you've picked up, even if you weren't here every time, how complex the issue of authority is. Uh, Although there are clear biblical principles about authority, there are very few simplistic answers when it comes to how we uh, obey and submit and practice authority in the lives of others. And I'm starting with that to say that today's facet of authority has, in my opinion, the most shades of gray and the most nuance, uh, and in fact is the messiest of all of the topics we've talked about yet. So I'm saying that to prepare you because we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna wrestle with something that's a little hard, a little tough, a little personal. We're talking today about succession. The, the family and the, the authority that your family or your community, your church, your tribe has over you as a person. That, that we don't exist in isolation and, we're, and, and for this we're not talking about governments or, or external things, we're talking about the very personal groups, tribes, families that you and I are in, and what, what level of authority should they have over us individually. And so as we get into it, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5, and we're just going to jump right in to verse 1. Uh, Paul writes to the Christians in Galatia, uh, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And let's just start right off by saying, what a great verse, especially uh, for Americans, right? This is some good red-blooded American Bible, right? Oh, free, that's right. You know, this is such good stuff for us. We love this kind of language. But if you've been with us at all in any of the previous weeks, you you know that, that we have to thoughtfully wrestle with free from what exactly? We're free from a lot of things, and even in our freedom, there are things that still constrain us. And so before we just embrace this as a bumper sticker slogan, we've got to really be honest about what we are free from. What is it that Paul says that we should not be burdened by a yoke of slavery? And he answers it kind of lengthily in this passage, but he does it much more succinctly in a different letter, a letter he wrote to the Christians in Rome. So we're going to jump there real quick. So Paul says the same thing. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from what? From the law of sin and death. We've been set free from the law, which sounds great, except that if there's no law, then there's no authority, and I've been wasting my breath for the last six weeks talking about this. Paul can't possibly mean that we're, we're set free uh, entirely from the law, because then how, how are we going to have any order or, or anything in life? And in fact, Paul himself wrote later on in the same letter, he wrote this in chapter 13. He said, everyone should be subject to the governing authorities. This is what we talked about in week two, about church versus state authority, that there is a law of government that matters that we should be obedient to uh, because there's no authority except that which God has established. And then last week we looked at another letter of Paul's where where he said positional authority, authority in the families, it's good uh, because law is so that we may go well, life may go well with us and that we may enjoy long life on the earth. That that law uh, is not just something that we should obey, but it's, it's intended for our benefit. And it's really easy to write this off as, oh yeah, that's the Bible, it contradicts itself. 
Except that it's the same guy writing these things, sometimes in the same letter. And so maybe it's not that it's a contradiction, maybe it's that this is not simple. That talking about law is is a complex, nuanced issue. And in fact, that's what Paul himself says in another letter to Timothy. He says, look, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And this sentence right here is the root of all of the issues that Christians have when we talk about authority and law, that you have to use the law properly. And when you don't, things go awry. Uh, And so what I'd like to do now is before we get into the the rest of Galatians 5, I want to try to distill for you as best I can 2,000 years of Christian wrestling with how to use the law properly. That as people have been engaging with these words of Paul, they've been looking at scripture as a whole, uh, they, they've said, okay, we need to, we need to be just as nuanced and, and complex and thoughtful about the law as the Bible is. And so what they've noticed, they've observed some things in human nature, they've read scripture very carefully, and they've said, you know what, when you look at how the law plays out in our lives, there are some different ways that the law weaves in and out of, of our lives. First of all, that there's this, um, this kind of pragmatic law that just says how, uh, how do we maintain order in the world? And some people call it a cur because it's a law that limits our damage. That's what the first use of the law is. That, that, uh, and this is where government falls in, that it just says, hey, well, we're, gonna, we're gonna limit the damage. This would be like uh, having a guardrail on a high, windy mountain road, right? That, that maybe if you crash, you're not gonna go flying off the cliff, you're gonna hit the guardrail. It's gonna limit the damage that will be done in your life. Uh, and, and so the question that this prompts for us as Christians is, is we should be asking because of this law, what's fair? What's fair in life? You know, what is just, what is the, you know, what should we do that is fair? And again, this is where government fits. But that's not the only use of the law that we observe, right? When we look around, there's also this moral law, this law that teaches us what's right and what's wrong. And we kind of call this the second use of the law, and some people describe it as a mirror. That it's a mirror because this use of the law shows us our sin. We look in the mirror and we realize, ah, I've, I'm not the perfect thing I'd like to be. That's the second use of the law. And, and this use of the law drives a different question for Christians. It, it makes us ask, since this law is about what's right, it makes us ask, what's wrong with me that's exposed by this use of the law? But even that's not the only use of the law that we observe either in scripture or in life. That, that there's also kind of this third use of the law uh, that's more of, of, a, of an optional, um, optional, not quite the right word, but a guiding use of the law, it's a guide, uh, that says that, that we want naturally to, to be good to people. We wanna love our neighbor, we wanna treat people kindly. And, and we have this impulse in us uh, that's not, it's not the same thing as the first use. It's, it's just saying that as we want to live life better, the, the law is a guide that helps us do that. And the question that this one tends to spark for Christians is what's helpful? What's ultimately helpful uh, for the law? And, and the difference between these is a few things. One is both of these tend to be oriented to other people. This one tends to be more of an internal. So these are external laws. This is an internal one. But, but the big difference between the first and the third is this, that this one is mandated this one is optional. See, a first use of the law uh, is me saying you know, to my son, hey, you shouldn't take your sister's toy, right? I, I can enforce that. that that's the thing that I can, I can expect and ask. But third use uh, would, would be when my son, just out of the goodness of his heart, wants to love his sister, and so he buys her a slushie with his own money. 
That's third use, that's helpful. But I couldn't demand it of him, I couldn't force him to buy something. It was a choice that he made in love. That's first use and third use. And and so as we look at these, historically theologians have found that this has been really helpful for sorting through the different ways that the Bible talks about the law and the different way that the law plays out in our lives. And let me give you just kind of a quick and dirty example using something like driving. Right? So think about driving, that we have rules of the road. There are laws like speed limits, and those are first use. A speed limit does not make you a better driver. But what it does do is it limits the damage that you can do when you get in a wreck. Because if you are, if you are following the speed limit and you're, you're going as fast as you should be, even if you mess up, the damage is not going to be as bad as if you were going 50 miles faster. Right? That, that's a first use of the law. Uh, second use of the law is when you get in a car wreck. And you suddenly have it exposed in a very real way that you are not as good of a driver as you thought you were. Or maybe it was the other guy. He's not as good of a driver as he thinks he is. That's the second use. That's that mirror that shows our, where we fall short, shows our brokenness. But then third use would be someone who says, you know what, I want to make the road a safer place when I drive. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign up voluntarily for a driver's ed course. And I'm going to get some instruction, get some hours in there and, and take some tests. And I'm going to really work on my skills, not because I have to, but just because I want to be a better driver, I want to be safer for myself and the people around me on the road. So you see how just even in one aspect of life, something like driving, you have all three uses of the law playing out. Okay, so, so then from there, we, we start to build some, some kind of consequences from this, that every, every one of these uses of the law is gonna drive some sort of action on our part, right? That be, this law is gonna expose something that we're then gonna say, all right, here's what I need to do about that. So, so the first use of the law that, that, that makes us ask the question, what's fair, that should drive us as Christians to live lives of wisdom and justice. We should say, hey, since this matters, we should, we should have wisdom and justice. We should care about just laws in our country. We, we, should, we should advocate for these things and we should certainly live in a way that's fair to other people around us. We should have wise justice. Or over here on third use, this question, what's helpful, uh, ultimately should drive us towards actions of loving kindness towards our neighbor. That as we look at our siblings, our friends, the people around us, our coworkers, uh, that we are called to act in a, in a loving and kind way. And that's, that's the thing that scripture teaches. It talks about this all the time. In fact, we had a whole message series on this earlier this year. And so if you missed it, I encourage you to check it out. It was called A Life Built to Last. And we were looking at the wisdom in the Bible book of Proverbs and, and, and how basically Proverbs is all about this use of the law. It's saying, if you want to be a righteous person uh, in your interactions with other people, this is how you do it. You live loving kindness, and we had a whole series about that. You should check it out. Now, so far, hopefully, so good. We have three uses of the law. Each use of the law drives a different facet of righteous human behavior. The question of what's fair leads us to live wisely and justly with others. The question of what's helpful drives us uh, to choose loving kindness for the people in our lives around us. But I want you to ask this question and wrestle with it yourself. The second use of the law, this thing that says there is a moral law, there's, there's something right, and there's something wrong with me, what righteous action does that drive us to as human beings? Now, there is a very obvious answer to this question. You almost don't even have to think about it, right? If there's something wrong with me in the way I'm living, then the action I'm called to is I should live right. 
That's it. Do right, live right, be right. Do moral living and fix the thing that's wrong with me. That is such an obvious answer to this question. It is also the answer that most people naturally come to and leads to all of the damage and despair in the world. Because the second use of the law is fundamentally different from the other two uses. You see, these are about our behavior towards others. And the fact is, we can do pretty well at this stuff. And let's be honest, I'm a pretty fair person. And it doesn't come that hard to me. Like maybe when I was a toddler, but it's not that bad. And, And after a lifetime of trying to live wisely and work on myself and become a better person, I've gotten pretty good at at loving kindness towards my neighbor. Like this is not that big of a deal. We can do the behaviors pretty well. This one, this is the law that exposes our hearts. And no matter how good I get at sharing my toys and using kind words and all these other things, when I'm trying to just stop being so angry all the time or stop being so selfish or stop being so anxious or mean, or fearful, I can try and dig all those rocks out of my heart all day long. And you know what you're going to discover if you do it like me? There's always more rocks in the garden of my soul. That no matter what I try to do to correct myself, to be a right person, I can't do it if I'm being honest with myself. And it's not just my soul, like this is about our mind, heart, and body, that no matter what I do, this body is marked by death and decay. And I can live rightly, I can eat healthily and exercise and do all the things, this body is going to fail and die someday, no matter how rightly I live and treat it. You see, if if we're honest, let me say it this way, often we're not honest. And so as a result of this, we live lives of self-deception where we think we're great and the people in our lives around us, especially our family can tell us you're not. But if we're honest, it leads us to despair and death. Because if we're honest, every time you try and get rid of something ugly in your heart, it just pops right back up later. You see, this second use of the law, what we naturally default to is moral living, but we can't do it because no one has ever lived a moral life. No one has ever done it perfectly or been able to say, I got it right in my heart, except for one person. One person did it right, and that's the answer to this column, that that the one person was Jesus Christ, God himself made man, he lived a perfect life. And he used that power of perfection to fix what's wrong with me. See, this is the intent of the second use of the law, that it's not trying to drive us to self-deception and hypocrisy. It's not trying to drive us to the despair of knowing that we can't actually do it all. It's meant to show us that we're so broken so that finally, in desperation for a lack of any better option, we'll finally turn to Jesus. And we'll finally let him do the work of moral living on our behalf. He will drive the thing that makes us right, not us. See, and and then there is actually a righteous action for us human beings to do in the second use. But the righteous action is not moral living. It's this. It's confession. You see, God in his goodness sent himself down and became a human and said, look at how I do it. Look at 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 how perfectly I live. So that... 
You can cease striving for it yourself. You can quit trying to live up to an impossible standard, and you can simply be grateful for the work that I did on your behalf. See, confession is is not a, a big cosmic guilt trip. Confession is us finally stopping pretending and admitting, just being honest about the fact that we're never gonna get this right and thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. This is the action for us. And and if you needed to hear that today, if if that's not something that's ever been said clearly to you, then hear it now, that you and I will never live perfect lives. I'm not up here on this stage because I I have got it all figured out morally in my heart and in my life. I have not. I am up here on this stage because I trust that Jesus has. And he offers you the same trust He offers you an invitation to stop striving, stop trying to pretend that you're better, just admit that you're broken and rely on the work of God on your behalf. You see, this is the point that it's God's righteous actions that actually drive all of our righteous actions. Not just this one, over here in this first column, it's the fact that God is a creating father, maybe he is, there he is. He made an orderly universe. That this isn't just a random combination of atoms. This isn't just survival of the fittest and what, thing, what, what cells happen to survive. God made the universe according to a plan that, that it was designed around principles of justice and order. And that's why we can live with wise justice and it's going gonna, it's gonna to do well. It's going to be a better thing for us because we're submitting to the work of the Father in our lives. And in the same way that it's not a first article thing, there's also a second article thing that, that we're submitting to the fact that there is a redeemer who lived the perfect moral life so we can stop pretending. But then in the third use that there's a third person of the Trinity that Jesus calls a helper, that that he's promised that he puts his spirit in us, in you, in me. We actually have divine help in our lives. Not not an external thing, but an internal thing that, that, that the Holy Spirit is guiding us. And that's how we are able to do loving kindness in the world. And then hopefully you've experienced this. I have too, moments where I'm so mad, I'm so frustrated, there is nothing in me that has any positive feeling toward that other person around me. And from somewhere, I draw the strength to clamp down on the harsh word, to, to, not, uh, to not lash out the way I want to, to, to respond with patience and grace. And in that moment, if you didn't recognize it before, recognize it now, that wasn't me doing it. That was God through me, letting me tap into his presence, his power, his loving kindness in this moment where I didn't have it. And and, and by the way, this is really important and powerful because this is how we get moral living back into the equation. See, moral living does matter, but it doesn't matter over here. It matters here. See, we don't do moral living because it makes us any more right with God but we do it because it's sure a better way to love our neighbor. That the more morally I live, the the, the less harm I do on people around me, and in fact, the more blessing I bring to people around me. Moral living is a Christian value, but only in the third use of the law column. If we bring it over here at all, it becomes deadly. 
And in fact, that's what Paul is gonna talk about in Galatians chapter five. So now that I've kind of explained all of this, and if you want it in a little more depth, there is a book that I found really helpful by Dr. Joel Bierman. It's called A Case for Character. Uh, if you wanna get more than the 10 minute summary version of this, uh, you can read that book and, and read it for yourself. But for now, we're gonna take this, we're gonna throw it up there on the big screen, and we're gonna look at Galatians chapter five again. So here we go, first one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free from the second use of the law, that we are set free from the law, but only the second use. And here's why I can say that to you so confidently, because I've read ahead and I know what verse two says. So now let's go to verse two, because what is Paul talking about? He's saying, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Now, I don't wanna get into the weeds on circumcision, but let me, just, let me just say it this way. It was the defining moral rightness attribute of the day. That if you wanted to know the difference between a pagan, evil, jerk who doesn't love God and a righteous, holy person who God favors, the answer was circumcision. The jerks were uncircumcised, and if you were circumcised by definition, you were a righteous person, you were a morally good person. Now, we don't value that today, it doesn't matter for us today, but just know that was the thing. This was the height, the epitome of moral living, of righteousness. And Paul is saying, if you notice if we're in the second column here, they're saying if this is true for you, then Christ will be of no value to you at all. And, and now you see why he's saying it. Because if you think that you can do a thing and it's that simple and straightforward as having a little surgery and you are now right with God, you don't need the work of Jesus anymore. You don't need a savior if it turns out it was that easy. I don't even have to be kind or use good words or not steal. I can just have a little operation done and now I am right with God. I don't need Jesus, I don't need a savior, I don't need to be protected from anything because I am protecting myself. I am earning righteousness myself. See, Paul was, was warning them from falling in the very trap that I just showed you, that trap that the second use of the law drives us to think that moral living is the way out. And he's saying, if you think moral living is the way out, then you don't need Jesus. And in fact, you're gonna be self-deceived because it's not actually the way out. He continues on. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You wanna be, want be circumcised? Great, you gotta do everything perfectly, everything. Because you who are trying to be justified the law, you've actually done something different. You have alienated yourself from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So this is a big deal. And this is why we have to keep this constrained because, because he's not talking about first use stuff. He's not talking about third use. He's only talking about this moral law, this thing that makes us right. Because if this is where we live, then we don't have Jesus and we don't have grace. And that's a big deal. But what he says is this, so he, he kind of summarizes this point. He says, but because through the Holy Spirit, and now remember from our chart, now we're talking some third use of the law stuff. He says, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. So this being right thing, what's wrong with us and how can we be made right? That's a good thing to want, but we get it in Christ Jesus. And because of Jesus, it's now not circumcision or uncircumcision. None of that has any value. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
That's, that's it. That's what matters. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. No, back up and stay on that one for a minute. Notice what he's saying. They had all of these cultural values, all of these things that their family, their church, everyone said, this is the best right way to live. And he's saying, the only thing that matters is none of those things, faith expressing itself through love. And you see that there is that theme throughout all three columns. That no matter which part of the law you're looking at, love drives all of it. It's love why we should be fair to people because we love them. Love is why we want to be helpful to the people around us. Love is what drove God to, to let himself die on a cross to make us right. Love drives all of it. And then faith becomes the only thing that gives us access to this part of God. That's why confession is so important because faith is where we put our trust in the work of Jesus instead of in ourselves. Faith is when we go, you know what? I'm done striving, I'm gonna believe that the work Jesus did for me was enough, that Jesus loved me enough to make me right. This is the picture. And all of this is in the second use column. That when we're talking about what is right and what is wrong, we only stay in the second use of the law. And here's why this matters, because Paul is about to pivot. He's about to go somewhere a little different And here's where he goes. So in the next verse, he said, all right, because, so I'm going to remind you what I said at the beginning. You, my brothers and sisters, remember what I said in verse one, you were called to be free. Second use, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, Paul's saying, you are free, second use, but we have an obligation in the third use of the law to serve one another humbly in love. That's actually a burden that we are not free from. He continues on. He says, look, because the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. The law is fulfilled by love in every column. And here's the command, love your neighbor as yourself. And when we start talking about loving our neighbor as ourself, notice that Paul has switched over. He is talking about a different facet of the law. He's talking about the third column now. And if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. See, this is really important stuff that Paul is saying in Galatians 5. This is actually one of the most important chapters in the Bible for understanding uh, the Christian beliefs because Paul is saying this. He's saying that you and I, we are free. There is no one on this earth who can judge us when it comes to being morally right because God himself, through the work of Jesus on the cross, has declared you and me perfect. That nothing stands between us and our relationship with God. Nothing stands between us and the good thing God wants for us in eternity. But it doesn't take away the third use of the law. And Paul says if we let our freedom in the second use drive us, we're going to destroy each other. We're going to bite and devour. That our community does have an obligation over us or we have an obligation to it. And so with all of this background and this kind of breaking down of the different uses of the law, now we get to today's authority question, which is this. What is the authority of the community versus you or me? And and here's why this is so tricky and why we had to go through all of Galatians 5 and and 2,000 years of of doctrinal thinking uh, to get to this point. Because this is so personal and so messy that it muddies the uses and we don't even notice it. See, when we're talking about community, the, the, the ones I really want to focus on today is our family and our church. Because what happens inevitably when we talk about the communal authority over us is that your family, your church, they will use 
language of moral authority over you. That by and large, your, your, your family, your, your church, and I you know, want to confess this, they will, um, they will use second use moral arguments to persuade you to obey what the group believes you should do. And this is the same exact trap that we talked about in that chart, that that second use of the law that makes us think moral living is the right thing to do, it's a trap when your community says you need to do this the right way, that's a trap. And churches are terrible about this. Families are even worse because it's not even explicit. They don't spell it out this way. They don't, they don't use that language, but they use reasons that are ultimately appeals to second use morality, even though the burden to our community is a third use issue. And let me give you a couple of examples, right? That your community, they won't say things like, this is the right thing to do. They'll say, they'll appeal to the majority. They'll say, everybody's doing this. Everybody's coming over for family dinner. You're the only one that's not. And what, but recognize the implication in this. If everyone's doing it, that's because it's right. And if you are doing something different, then you are wrong. That's a second use moral argument or the appeal to tradition. But we've always done it this way. And, and notice the second use morality there, that, that we wouldn't have been doing it for such a long time if it wasn't the right thing to do. And so if you're bucking tradition, you're going against what the family says, what your church body says, you are morally wrong. See, and what happens is when we just let this go unnoticed, and I'm just gonna tell you now, we all let this go unnoticed. This has been the work of my life and it's gonna to continue to be the work of mine that we don't even recognize these at a conscious level most of the time. We don't notice that they're using second use moral arguments against us. All we know is we feel really guilty and really bad. And it's because what it amounts to is that most of the authority that your family, and even if they're loving Christian people, most of the authority your church, even if they're trying hard to be a good church, most of the appeals to tradition, to majority, to morality, most of them are, are functionally moral blackmail. It's moral blackmail. This is what Paul is saying. If we let our community, whether it's your family or your church, tell you that this is the thing to do because it is right, then Christ has died in vain. If we succumb to the moral blackmail and don't recognize it for what it is, then we will fall into the same trap. We'll get right back in guilt, shame, trying to please, trying to be right enough for our family. And, we, and we've completely lost the freedom that Jesus died for us to have. Now, it doesn't mean that your community, your family, your church doesn't have some moral value over you, but we just have to keep it clear that the appeal is not to the second use. The appeal is to the third use of the law. That in fact, the traditions and the values and the majority opinions of your family, your church, they have value insofar as they are beneficial. That you and I, as image bearers of Christ, people who have been set free from death and morality by God himself, we are called to have discernment, to have the same wisdom uh, of God, which we have because the Holy Spirit is in us, and that we are actually called to faithfully wrestle with this question, which things of our community are truly beneficial. And here's what I'm gonna warn you. To even ask this will be seen as threatening to your community. To, to even imply that maybe your church is doing something that it shouldn't 
or maybe a valued family practice uh, is not beneficial, that is going to be seen as threatening to everyone involved. But if we don't do it, then we lock ourselves back up in a prison of guilt and shame and we undo the work of Jesus in our hearts. Now, let me be real clear. A lot of traditions and opinions and values in our communities are gonna be beneficial. You're gonna examine them and you're gonna say, actually, yeah, that's a pretty good one. My family, we had a tradition growing up that that at Christmas, we always took turns opening one present at a time around the family instead of just, you know, one mad dash free for all and everyone rips it open. Uh, And and I love that tradition because uh, it taught me to value not just what I got for Christmas, but but it taught me to delight in seeing the facial expressions of somebody that I gave something for Christmas. It's a really beautiful tradition and I've I've kept it up with my family today because it was powerful. Or or here's one, here's a church one. Uh, It's a little weird when you think about it that we ask people to come to a church service and and maybe you don't even know anyone here, you're a guest, you're a first time visitor, and we say, hey, we want you to feel comfortable, we want you to feel welcome and safe, and so the first thing we're gonna have you do is sing a song you don't know in front of a bunch of people you've never met. It's kind of weird when you think about it. You're like, like, what's the benefit of that? And, And yet, what we know is that singing songs in a group uh, is, a hu- is not just a tradition of Christianity, but it's a huge value to us. It, it actually makes things better for us. And, and secular sociological studies ha- have shown this, that there is something powerful that happens when people sing together in a group. And if you need to know that it's not just a church thing, anyone remember where they were on June of 2019 in St. Louis? Anyone else in a bar singing Gloria with a bunch of drunk blues fans? If you were, it was powerful. There was something undeniably beautiful and rare about this moment where strangers are are unified around some delightful thing and they are singing to to manifest and express that energy. It's a beautiful, it's a valuable, it's a helpful tradition. So those are the beneficial ones. And it's okay to, to take a step back, look at them and say, is it beneficial, is it helpful? But then we also have to do the other side of the coin. And this is where, I just wanna tell you, things get really hard. Because you have to ask the question too, what traditions or values or opinions are actively causing harm? And again, to even ask the question is gonna be threatening, but let me give you a couple of examples of how we need, need to figure this out. I'll, I'll start with a church example, that traditionally for church for 2,000 years, uh, pastors wear robes. Uh, If you don't know, we're Lutheran Church, we're part of the Missouri Synod denomination, and even today, 95% of Lutheran pastors wear a robe when they lead a service, and we don't. And it's because, while we looked at the tradition of it, and there is a benefit to wearing robes, if you didn't know this, let me me, um, share this with you. It's actually a beautiful reason why pastors wore robes. See, the idea was that a pastor, just like every one of you, is broken and sinful and messed up. But when they perform the role of Christ, when they come up here as a priest or a pastor, they put on a white robe to mark that even though the sinful man is still underneath, the white innocence of Christ is on me and the work I'm doing as I run a church service. Or even if you know people with collars, Catholics and Lutheran pastors and priests, they wear a black clerical with a white collar right there. And why? Because the black says, I'm, I'm black with sin myself, but when I speak the truth of Jesus, when I speak the gospel to you, that is white as snow. Really beautiful tradition, great concept. 
But what we discovered, at least in our corner of St. Louis, was that this tradition was actually causing harm to the very people we were trying to reach with the good news of Jesus. That they would walk in the door, if we could even get them in the door, and they'd see a pastor in a white robe and they'd say, this is not a place that understands where I'm coming from. That guy, he's way out of touch. I need a faith and a religion that's true to life, and some guy wearing a weird dress does not feel true to life to me. And so we had to weigh the cost. We had to say, even though there was a benefit to this tradition, if it's causing harm to the very people that we're trying to reach, then we should jettison it. But that cost harmed a lot of people that valued that tradition. People within our church, our fellow denomination, people outside of our church, they got real upset. But we had to stay true to what Paul said, the third use of the law, which is what was beneficial, what was harmful. Now that's church stuff, and maybe you don't give a rip about robes, Let me give you a family example. I've had this play out with with several friends in my life over the last 20 years. I've had friends and they married someone who came from a very strong family system. And that was a really beautiful thing. It was a thing they valued. I love someone who who cares about family. I care about family. Uh, But but in this particular um, thing, there's about five or six different people in my life. They married into a family that so hugely valued the, the family organization that they had weekly dinners that were inviolable. Every Saturday night, everybody comes over for dinner. And it doesn't matter that you're married or that you got grandkids or that you're here there, everybody comes back to the matriarch's house and everybody does family together. And that's a beautiful thing. I'd love having a strong family unit like that. How how could that be harmful? As I talked with a lot of those people, what they discovered was that family value was so strong that it kept them from truly making a new family with their spouse. That even as they had kids of their own and they were trying to build a a new culture, a a new unit, that pull to the the patriarchs and matriarchs kept them from truly cleaving to each other. That their spouse actually still felt a stronger bond to their parent than they did to them. And this beautiful thing, like a family dinner, was actually harming a marriage that they were trying to build together. Together. And this is why this gets so messy. Who wants to be the one to say, Grandma, we're not coming over for family dinner anymore? No one wants to do that. And and no one really wants to uh, upset the boat, hurt the people that are closest to you. And in fact, the reason this is so tricky and why this is so important for us to talk about is 90% of this is completely under the surface. You don't even question it. You don't evaluate why you have family dinner. Well, just because we've always done it. You don't think about why we wear robes. It's just what we've always done. And, and, and in that subconsciousness, so much damage, so much abuse happens. Because when we don't notice it for what it is, we let third use stuff bleed over into second use. And we enslave ourselves and we lose the grace of Jesus. This is why, frankly, there's been so much abuse exposed in Christian churches the last couple of decades because people treated the system as the most important thing and it didn't matter that there were victims who were being hurt. And when those victims tried to bring it up, the appeal was, how dare you do something in the second use? How dare you call out that you're being harmed because you're hurting the mission of the church? And what was happening was every one of those churches had violated second use and third use. They had stopped asking themselves the question, maybe if this institution is causing systemic harm, we need to change it. And it's so important for us because as we figure out how to, in a healthy way, live and submit with our family, 
we have to be willing to ask these hard questions and, we, and, and it's gonna unearth a lot of painful things. And I'll tell you right now, that there, there's no right answer. That's what I told you at the beginning. There is not a simple choice on this. In fact, Paul himself, he swung hard the other way. I wanted to share with you briefly, in 1 Corinthians 8, he talked about another moral law issue. This one was eating food sacrificed to idols. And don't worry about that. I just want you to hear what he says. Be careful, ever that the exercise of your freedom in the second use does not become a stumbling block to the weak, third use. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your freedom and knowledge eating in an idol's temple, that was the moral issue, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And so then this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is now destroyed because of your knowledge and freedom. When you sin against them in this way and you wound their weak conscience, you're actually sinning against Christ. And so therefore, even though I have second use freedom to eat whatever I want, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, third use, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. You see, this is not gonna be an easy answer and you and I are gonna wrestle with similar things and we're gonna come to opposite conclusions and what you need to know is that's okay. Because the question for, for what value and authority the traditions of your, of your family and your church have is always gonna be a third use question. And you're gonna have to ask yourself, is it still a benefit to someone? And if it is, we should keep it. Or is it causing harm, in which case we should reject it? Or maybe it's not really benefiting anyone that I can see, but also rejecting it might cause harm to someone around me. Well, then even though you don't need it, even though it's not beneficial anymore, if the rejection of it would cause harm, then we should, we should abide by it. We should keep that tradition. We should keep that value in our life. And what I'm just going to tell you is there is no way that you and I are going to navigate this particular piece of authority unscathed. Every one of us, we're going to mess up. We're going to hurt family members. We're going to hurt our church friends. We're, we're going we're to stumble on one side or the other. We're going to get back into second use stuff and feel guilt and shame all over again. But what I will tell you is this, is that if every step of the way, you just lean on Jesus and what he did for you. If when people come against you and they're going to come against you with accusations and hurt feelings, they're going to blame you for, for messing up and disrupting the family system, the church family, the one thing I can give you for this is as you do it, that, that you are doing two things. That one, you are walking in the freedom that Christ has given you and two, I pray that it drives you back to the goodness of Jesus every time. That when a human being tries to come against you and say, you're, you're hurting us, you're, you're making a bad choice, that you would say, I'm doing my best to help you. I'm doing my best to love you well and to love we, me well and to love our family well. And every step of the way, I'm throwing myself at the mercy of Jesus. Every step of the way, I'm admitting that I'm wrong and I'm messed up. And every step of the way, I'm trusting that Jesus makes me right again. You see, this is the path that not only redeems our families and our churches, this is the path that keeps us ever more safely in the embrace of Jesus Christ himself. Because there's no way to navigate it perfectly, because we're gonna mess it up, it's gonna drive us to Jesus more than anything else we do. And so I pray that in faith and in confidence of what God has done for you, you will wade into the messiness of our community, what authority it should or should not have over us, and that you will appraise carefully what's beneficial and what's harmful, and your life and the lives of others around you will be the healthier for it. So let me pray for you and pray for us as we go through this. Dear God, I give you thanks always that you are so thoughtful and careful in how you design this world 
and how you knew that we would fall short and how you also knew you would send your Holy Spirit to help us navigate the messiness of life. And so Lord, right now, I pray that we would all find our confidence in the work of Jesus on the cross, that we would know that if you judge us right and you say that we uh, have been made good by your work, then no one else can judge us again. And Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us that wisdom and discernment. You would help us navigate the, the messiness of our families, of our church, of the communities and tribes that, that claim our loyalty. And Lord, that we would walk that fine wire and not fall off on either side, but when we do fall off, Lord, that we would fall off and run straight back to you. And that you would remind us that you love us and you're delighted with us that you see us as perfectly right and that you will give us the strength to wade back in to the messy situations, to be voices of health in the lives of the people we care most about. We pray all this trusting in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.